This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. September 13, 1993, those of a certain age will certainly remember the top news of that day, a White House Rose Garden ceremony with President Bill Clinton officiating over a handshake between Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat of the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Now the efforts of all who have labored before us bring us to this moment. A moment when we dare to pledge what for so long seemed difficult even to imagine, that the security of the Israeli people will be reconciled with the hopes of the Palestinian people, and there will be more security and more hope for all. Papers were signed that day by both warring parties to set up a framework for peace between the two adversaries. Yitzhak Rabin. We harbor no hatred towards you. We like you, our people, people who want to build a home, to plant a tree, to love, live side by side with you in dignity, in empathy, as human beings, as free men. We are today giving peace a chance. Back then and still today, the Oslo Accords represent at least a hopeful moment for peace. Although the Oslo Accords didn't result in a lasting peace between Israel and Palestine, how they came about at all makes for a fascinating study in the hope for change, the persistence and bravery of negotiators on both sides of a conflict, and in this case, the dogged determination of two Norwegian peacemakers who drove the whole process. A stage dramatization of the story of Oslo started modestly in 2016 at a small theater in New York's Lincoln Center, and it later advanced to the center's Broadway stage, and then won the award for Best Play at the 2017 Tony Awards. Today on Peace Talks Radio, I talk with both Oslo playwright J.T. Rogers and director Bartlett Scherer. We welcome them in a moment, right after this clip from Oslo, which features actors Jefferson Mays and Jennifer Ely as Norwegian negotiators and spouses Tyrod Larsen and Mona Yule, as they describe the visit to the Gaza Strip that inspired them to take a lead in opening the back channel talks. A million Palestinians, most of them without regular electricity or water, crammed into an area 25 miles long but only a few miles wide. A population exploding with no place to explode. We were in a back alley there when we walked into it. A crowd seething, soldiers rushing. Ty and I crouched behind an upturned car as bodies fell. And then we saw it. Two boys facing each other. One in uniform, one in jeans, weapons in hand, hate flowing between them. But their faces. And we both see this. Their faces are exactly the same. The same fear, the same desperate desire to be anywhere but here, to not be doing this to this other boy. There, in that moment, for us, it began. J.T. Rogers, Bart Scherer, thanks so much for joining us on Peace Talks Radio. A pleasure to be here. Uh, it's great to be here. Playwright J.T. Rogers said, like most people, his understanding of the Oslo agreements was mostly on the Clinton-hosted announcement at the White House. He and director Bart Schur learned so much more on their deep dive into researching the back-channel work of the Norwegian facilitators, the parade of Israeli and Palestinian negotiators, and the mostly hands-off approach of the Clinton administration at the time. Bill and Hillary Clinton both attended a performance of Oslo in July of 2017. 
Here's Oslo Director Bart Schur. Uh, it was interesting to discuss with President Clinton what his perceptions of Oslo were. He did say that he was involved, uh, he knew about Oslo before we knew he knew about it. In other words, he was aware of the talks going on. He knew the problem was so significant that it was helpful for um, the uh, Americans to not try to interfere with it as they had done with agreements in the past. I think he trusted Christopher's participation in it. And in fact, what I think my own perception changed in thinking that he'd sort of swept in as a part of it. But I now really think, having studied it and looked at it, that that Clinton, the Clinton administration with Warren Christopher actually handled it incredibly elegantly because the agreement could never, ever have held uh, internationally without full support from the Americans. And they had enough lack of ego and enough um, understanding of the complexity of the situation that they uh, stepped up right at the right time. They really stood behind the agreement. They very publicly shepherded it into the full international view. And they were, um, they were, uh, it was really handled very, very well. So they knew when to step down and when to step up. Yeah, exactly. J.T. Rogers? There were a number of people who described a really fascinating moment that happened in the process that I wasn't able to put in the play just because, you know, you have to have, you can't put everything <laughs> in the play. But what happened was when the Israelis and the Norwegians went to meet Warren Christopher and publicly, t privately tell him in detail what they'd been doing, and a lot of it was complete secret to him, and they were very anxious, one of the things they had agreed is to say, well, we've done this, we prepared this extraordinary you know, buffet, so to speak. We want, not only would we like you to you know, shepherd it into view, as Bart said, but also you, obviously you're the Americans, you should take all credit for it, which was very, um, you know, selfless of the participants. And Warren Christopher said, oh no, no one would believe we did that. <laughs> and he said the opposite, no, no, you'll get the credit, we're just going to make it happen now. So yeah, it was that, it's what you want when leaders who were able to both step up and step down with their own ego out of the way. From having produced this program, Peace Talks Radio, since 2002, doing a deep dive into peacemaking strategies, you too can imagine how rich it was for me to have seen this production in May of 2017 in New York. So I did want to have each of you elaborate a bit on how the themes that, that we've highlighted on our show really blossom on stage in Oslo. And the first one, which is established early in the play, that single individuals can, through sheer will and application of peacemaking strategies, artfully make a big difference in the pursuit of peace. Or in Oslo's case, the married Norwegian couple, uh, Mona Juul and uh, Tyrod Larson. Yes, I mean, the thing that drew me to the story to begin with, the, the historical actual bones that I built from, is that you had two individuals who were, in the terms of the power structure of the moment, politically nobodies, who had this what seemed like a crazy idea and pushed it forward and pushed it forward and it, it was both evidence which is interesting as an artist and also as a citizen of individuals having the will and energy to make a tremendous difference and also it was the realizations i worked on the show that much like in rehearsals when we're making theater you need to have rules where individuals can privately be alone to let their guard down and learn to trust each other and that is the only way that actual change between people can happen. In, in essence, the reality is, as I've learned, you know, as I've learned things through this process, as Bart was just saying the same thing, of course you must have public 
uh, enormous um, multi-party political negotiations and dialogues to get things done. But there also has to be private rooms away from the cameras where people can talk about their personal lives. Otherwise, the, the only way there is change politically in any way, and certainly towards peace, is if sides in conflict are able to see the other side as human beings fully. Because when we see them as the enemy, be they Israeli-Palestinians, be they Republicans and Democrats in the political moment we're living in now, when the other side is the enemy and not a person, then nothing can move forward. Yeah, and I would also probably add to that um, that this whole notion in the play of the difference between totalism and gradualism, which we built it on, and Tyrod Larson was a sociologist, this notion of the two is kind of critical, and totalism is where you know huge groups of people very publicly on opposite sides of table um, come to some, you know, try to work out peace agreements, generally quite in public view. Whereas gradualism was Taya's point of view, which was to get them into private circumstances, small groups of, of um, small numbers of people, where they could only focus on specifically single issues at a time and work on them and then move on. So he had a specific process and strategy for how to create peace. Let's hear how those concepts were rolled out on stage in Oslo. In this scene, Taya Rod Larson, played by Jefferson Mays, is hearing from Israel's Yosin Berlin, played by Adam Danheiser. In Europe, they are calling us Nazis. In Europe, where it has only been 50 years, every day more and more the world turns against us, but all we do is sit at that negotiating table. Where you will achieve nothing because your negotiating model is fundamentally flawed. Exactly, so that's what I keep saying. You are trapped in a procedure saying. that is rigid, impersonal, yes, and Yes, yes, I agree completely, but this is what the Americans want us to yes, do. And so you must do it, but also establish a second channel, you know, built on the exact opposite model, not grand pronouncements between governments, but intimate discussions between people, you know, held somewhere isolated, totally, where you and the PLO can meet alone and talk. Now, this model I can oversee. This place I can arrange. How? The resources of my institute, FAFO, my expertise, all at your disposal. Discretion guaranteed. Again, Director Bart Schur. Within that, there were other rules, not all of which we make completely clear in our show, but one of the most important was that the two participants um, were not allowed to talk about the past. They could only talk about the future. So all of the enmities and issues and complexities and things that had led them there were not the, the subjects at hand. The only subject at hand was the future. Well, and part of what you're describing, too, is this um, emphasis on the establishment of a quality of connection between the two disparate sides, which comes up in our conversations about peacemaking all the time. There are some other principles about any peacemaking process that are part of this story, too. But to me, things like eating and drinking together um, always seems to create an atmosphere of cooperation and celebration that brings people closer together. We see that a lot in this play. Well, I think it was there from the beginning, and as we started rehearsing, to Bart's credit, he said, you know, I think we need another scene of this even where it's even more central. So I built that into the play, and it's become a very key moment when 
um, Toril, the housekeeper of the manor where they're secretly negotiating outside of Oslo, brings in waffles. Now, in real, this is all based in real life. In fact, she made waffles and everyone was mad for them, which was a detail that I loved, very human. Um, and it, it does, you can see the audience having that experience from their seats, that what we all do when we sit across from our family or our enemies and we eat and we talk, we have to do stuff. I mean, it's so fascinating. Again, the, the Clintons, with the Clintons, Hillary Clinton was at dinner with us and she kept saying, you know, the process you've described in this play is exactly how it always works. And she talked in great detail about George Mitchell and how he would sit with the two sides in the sectarian conflict in Ireland and how they wouldn't even speak to each other. They would literally speak through him for months and months. He would just have them come and they would sit and eventually they would eat and they would talk. And slowly things started to change. And it is the, you know, the universality of this sharing of food, of sharing of personal experiences. And it's, you know, it's a tremendous risk. One of the things we wanted to convey in the play, and I hope we have, is the extraordinary um, courage of the Israeli and Palestinian negotiators, both the real people and my versions of them in the play, they, they're risking their careers, in many cases their actual lives, to sit across from people they've always viewed as their enemy. And that's an amazing thing. And those are the kind of stakes, life and death stakes, that you want, you're always seeking as a theater maker. Bartlett Shearer and uh, J.T. Rogers online with us from Lincoln Center in New York talking about Oslo, the Tony Award-winning play. Could you also talk about the use of humor in negotiation and in this play? Well, when I discovered that in real life, the negotiators um, all liked when they were off duty, they would be doing impersonations of their bosses for each other to great delight on all sides. And that there was a couple of running jokes they would always tell each other. That was a bit of an aha moment for me because one, you're always looking for the lighter and the human side in writing a play. And also it's just one of the things we wanted to do in this production and in the writing of the play was to go against, to be counterintuitive. People would come in there, oh, it's going to be a play about Israel-Palestine. It's going to be good guys versus bad guys. It's going to be a lecture. It's going to be hand-wringing. But in fact, it's about flesh and blood men and women who are funny and get furious and are complicated people, but also very sexy and charming and at times rageful. And like like the sharing of food, the sharing of jokes seems to be something that is universal in situations like this because there's something bonding about it and humor, it, it, you know, humor across culture still works. In some ways even works, it becomes even more of a lifeline because it's something you know you both share, so let's latch on to that. Another scene here, again, actors Mays and Ely as the Norwegians listening to an excited Palestinian negotiator, Yuri Savir, played by Michael Aronoff. Shimon Perez is a giant among men, like a father to me, but my God, the man takes forever to get to his point. <laughs> Finally, he said, <clears throat> Come for me. Your country needs you. I need you. How could I say no? And now he has selected me to do this. God, I'm starving. No, 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 stay, sit. I'll rummage, uh, pour some champagne. Yes, of course, as you wish. I liked him so much better when he wasn't talking. <laughs> I'll tell you a secret. I was nervous as hell to meet those two first members of the PLO I've ever been face to face with. So what do you think of them? Uh, not the demons I was expecting. This Ahmed, what do you call him? Abu Allah. Uh, I can do business with this man. My God, you can't imagine to have someone finally we can deal with. I have thought of this day for years. And in juxtaposition to that, overcoming the level of hatred 
that parties bring to the table, especially in the, this example, when the hatred rears its head in this play, it is appropriately scary to watch. I mean, what process could overcome this emotion, these objections to atrocities? It's a real pendulum swing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think um, if you take the example of humor and um, deep conflict, those were the very elements that attracted uh, us to making a play because it had wild swings in behavior because there's a lot of subtext. There's many layers deep to what they're saying and feeling in each moment. That stuff may rear its head. Um, people change are mercurial. Uh, this is what makes theater. And so uh, it may be uh, your experience of peace negotiations and peace, the peace process of all forms, um, which I no doubt is incredibly interesting and important to the world. Actually, from the point of view of a theater maker, in this case, it was like, well, this would be a good piece of theater. People want to go and see people struggle this hard, make mistakes, fall apart, scream at each other, tell stupid jokes, behave badly, make it up, go on to the next thing, yell at each other again. That becomes a piece of theater. And um, that's what made it something we thought people would recognize. And one thing I think JT does beautifully as a writer is take this very human behavior and place it against the backdrop of this extraordinary uh, historical events. And um, we get to see detail by detail how it works. But what you just described makes me think about how watching Oslo unfold for an audience member might spark ideas about how to resolve conflicts in their daily lives with adversaries at work, with family members, with neighbors next door. Yeah, but that would be... I mean, you know, if the Greeks were doing, you know, their spring festival and in their spring festival putting on, you know, three or four great tragedies about their history, they essentially were giving themselves a guidebook through theater of how to resolve conflict of any kind. And that the transference exercise of making theater in general is specifically about that. It's about how we come to these places where um, we see in others' behavior places we should or shouldn't go or ways of coping or ways of managing or um, the experience of tragedy in general is quite uplifting because you go through that catharsis and experience of tragedy or humor or comedy and you see some of yourself and you move on to the next place. Well, you both have to feel a little bit good about that or a little hopeful that that has that kind of impact on people. Yeah, I'd say hopeful and, and rather humbled by the extent of its, how it's rippled out. We'll have more with playwright J.T. Rogers and director Bartlett Scherr about their Tony Award-winning play Oslo, all about the back-channel negotiations in the early 1990s that led to the Oslo Peace Accords. Stay tuned to Peace Talks Radio.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. You know, we've been at this effort since the year 2002 and now have an archive of scores of programs that make for a real fine peace studies curriculum. You can hear past shows, find other resources, read transcripts and more all online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. It's also where you can find out how to help keep this work going that preserves part of the media landscape for talk about peacemaking. Let your local outlet know that you appreciate these shows too. After I saw the Broadway play Oslo in 2017, I'd been wanting to talk to both the playwright and the director. Then it won the Tony for Best Play, and I really wanted to talk with them. So we do have them on today's show. And here's more of my conversation from July of 2017 with playwright J.T. Rogers and the play's director, Bartlett Scher. Uh, if I can get back to a couple of particulars, though, um, and this may relate to something I think J.T. mentioned about what you've learned about the peacemaking process by going deeply into this story yourselves. But talk about the importance of a stepwise approach of negotiation that seemed to be so much a part of this process. That is, finding what you can agree on, agreeing on this before you tackle the thing that you know is seems impossible down the road. Well, it's interesting to, both in the researching of it and then the response to the the written play, the, the, what's been controversial about the Oslo Accords, and it, it certainly is controversial still, is was it right to start small and go, and, and, and you know, and the positive way of putting it is to start small and slowly build towards the bigger. The negative view is to start small and kick the problems down the road, has been described to me. And, you know, again, going back to what I said earlier, one of the things about being a playwright as a journalist is you struggle with this and you think, well, gee, I don't, I don't know. Should they have done it? Should they not have done it? I've certainly come to believe that it was both the right thing to do and did pay tremendous dividends, just having lived with this for the last few years. But I certainly understand the criticisms that are very strong. But I think, again, in an odd way, using my own experiences as a theater maker and just a citizen, you can't get to the large if you're not, you, know, you can't write a play to sit down and write a play. You have to sit down and say, today I'm going to write for 15 minutes and work on the beginning of scene one. Otherwise you look up at the mountain and you're overwhelmed. And that's the same process for anything, be it peacemaking, be it theater making, being an athlete, and not to equate them all you know, in terms of their importance or their value. But it's clear that any time any sort of peace or progress towards seeing the humanity in each other is because people have had the time and what we do in this play is we give the audience almost three hours to sit quietly and engage together with our cell phones off in which you have the experience to be collectively focused on something and that collective working towards something even if it's just dinner even if it's deciding to not to talk about bloodshed of the past but to what could we do next even if we bitterly disagree on what that option would be that seems to me perhaps naively as the only way to really make actual progress. Talk about the lead role of Mona Jewell, the wife of Ty Rod Larson in this story. You know, Ty said in your interview with Charlie Rose that it points to the importance of having women center stage in difficult international negotiations. And it feels like that you were discovering that and reinforcing that belief in your portrayal of this play. Could you talk about that a bit? Yeah, I mean, Mona herself as a person is a very... Um, uh, extraordinary, dutiful public servant. Um, she f 
uh, follows the rules. She's discreet. She knows uh, she's eminent professional in everything she does. Taya, on the other hand, is a bit more free range, a bit more loose in his, uh, open in his thinking, a little bit more out of the box in his thinking. I mean, look at the world, my love. The old order is falling away. The unthinkable is becoming thinkable. Now, this is our chance to make a difference. Fine, go ahead and try. But no, no. I cannot do this without you. After all, who am I but you, my darling? You are Mona Ewell, jewel of the Norwegian Foreign Service, who possesses the most beautiful, powerful Rolodex. <laughs> Let us try, my love, together. Tell me you would have said no. As we were making um, Oslo, it became very clear that um, throughout the negotiations, Mona's presence uh, was incredibly critical. Just her pr very presence, even as facilitator, was critical to holding together all of these men who were making these negotiations. And that um, every time we met any... Um, person who was involved in the talks or knew either both of them they always would say the same thing they'd say something like oh we love Mona um, which was a kind of odd experience but it really was their kind of humorous way of saying she was a very special glue JT beautifully and a special glue to the whole process so JT very cleverly and I think intelligently wove her through as the narrator and as the person that hold held up the play together in the same way she may have held the negotiations together. And she became a more and more important character throughout the course of the writing. And um, uh, we found that she uniquely, as a woman and as a steading influence, um, was sort of our primary guide through the entire event. It's interesting also in that same Charlie Rose interview, Ty said uh, he'd have a wild idea and Mona would say, yeah, but consider this, bring him back to the ground to what was possible. And there seems to be this tug between hope and reality, impossible and possible throughout the whole play. Yeah, I mean, their relationship in general is the sort of central metaphor for the peace process itself. You know, and a, someone with an ability to really be creative and think, you know, in new ways about how to do it, and somebody who is constantly being specific and human, except for in one moment where... JT specifically put her in the room at the most heightened tension and she stepped beyond her normal role and insisted that they stay and fight and work harder to make peace. Bartlett Shear and JT Rogers online with us from Lincoln Center in New York talking about Oslo, the Tony Award-winning play. Um, I'd like to hear Bart tell the story about how this project began because I find it so interesting that in high-level peace negotiations, the theme of making peace for the sake of children often comes up. And, and this project started because your daughter played soccer with Tyrod Lawson's daughter, right? Yeah, well, actually, um, my daughter's best friend in second grade at school in, here in New York City was Emma Rod Larson, who was the daughter of Tyrod Larson and Mona Ewell. Um, they were um, very, very close friends. Uh, I met actually Mona first at school, coming, you know, right in front of school, dropping her daughter off. Um, and I would go to soccer matches. They played on the same, what they call in New York, travel team. And so we went to a lot of things together. And he would tell absolutely crazy 
stories of Middle East peace uh, while we were watching soccer, which most of the parents weren't as familiar with as he was. And um, yes, it was through our children that we got to know each other. And um, I invited Taya to come and speak at a different play that I was doing with JT called Blood and Gifts about the um, Stinger missile program in the 80s in Afghanistan. And uh, he was amazing. And um, JT could kind of feel and sense that there was a play here. I thought it might be interesting. And the two of them went off and had drinks at a local um, pub near Lincoln Center and um, sat down. So what then, JT? Well, yeah, Bart set us up on a on a you know match dot com playwriting date, <laughs> and we went out for drinks. And he's a diplomat, so he doesn't want to talk about himself. But I had a sort of a sliver of information about this, and and as you mentioned me earlier, saying as I have, I, I really didn't know about the back channel at the Norwegians, and I was a bit embarrassed, especially being somebody who thinks they're up on politics. So that was interesting to me. And so as we drank and round after round, I would get him asking more and more questions. He started to open up a bit about it. And I was thunderstruck, both both as a you know policy wonk to think I didn't know anything about this, but also as a playwright, you think, again, as Bart was mentioning in different contexts, these are the tools of drama. This is exactly what you want, a, a ticking clock, a set amount of time, people risking their their lives, but also the details, even the first, first cursory details I learned were so strange. There's sort of mana from heaven as a playwright. The PLO sneaks in on, you know, rent chartered, non-chartered flights, and they have Avis rental cars in the middle of the winter, and there's lots of Johnny Walker Black for everyone. And and I just immediately had one of those moments where I think, ah, I'm not sure how it will play out, but this is definitely the next thing I'm going to write. Now, you talked a little bit earlier about the play versus reality and some of the um, dramatic choices that you take when you're trying to shape something like this. Um, but I'm interested in your research, and as you'd expect, our interview today will spark a curiosity in listeners to find out more about what happened. Were there a couple of books that you found essential to your research on the back channel story? I think probably the best single volume book that I've come across. I mean, it's amazing for something that so many of us don't know about how many books and memoirs and, and uh, YouTube films and um, frontline documentaries there are. Um, in terms of books, there's a, a very fine um, book by an English journalist named Jane Corbin called, the, in America, it's called Gaza First, The Secret Channel to, you know, to Peace. And I think that's a tremendous, uh, slim, one-volume compendium. Uh, the participants all written memoirs, and those are all fascinating for different reasons. Ahmed Kureh and Uri Sevier and Jan Eglund. And some talk just about this, and some have had long careers, like Jan Eglund just only have a chapter about it because he's had an illustrious career dealing with peace and foreign policy around the world. But I think the Corbin book is a, a great place to start. And there's a frontline documentary, which I hadn't seen because as I was re researching it, I didn't want to hear their actual voices in my head. But everyone says the, the frontline documentary about the back channel is quite good. Hmm. So beyond Ty and Mona, who you did meet with, did you not seek out the real people uh, uh, who you portray before you started writing? Yes, I actively didn't. I made the decision to, to in essence, you know, as a playwright, stalk them by reading everything they'd ever written and, and reading the actual transcripts that exist of what happened in the rooms when they were negotiating. But I wanted... As I said before, the, the, the energy or power for a play is the playwright is the metronome of the human voice. So I wanted to try to keep intellectually 
have people saying what those real people believed. So I set a rule that no one could talk on stage about things that they wildly didn't believe in in real life because that would feel unfair, I think. But I wanted to create my version of these people. There's not a verbatim player. It was, you know, a fictionalized retelling. And it's been interesting to meet a number of them and have people who know them or and or people who know them intimately come to see it. And it's been very heartening how what's been embraced by these people. And some people have said, oh, certain characters are very different from the real person, and some people are eerily the same. And there was no attention either way. So that's sort of interesting how your subconscious does that as a writer. Yeah, that always seems like such a daunting task. I know it's what you deal with all the time, writing a part for a living person who you may or may not get to meet, and then you know, Bart casting the part, directing the part. Um, it's, it, it always seems overwhelming to me to go through that process is it routine for you now? I wouldn't say routine. If it ever gets routine, and you're not doing, you know, you have to be terrified <laughs> through the process uh, for it to be successful at the end, hopefully, I think. But again, like we talked, what well, you talked about earlier, I mean, I as a writer and Bart as a director and us collaborating, you just take it step by step. And, you know, you don't, it was, I, right, Bart, there's no point where we're sitting around going, oh, what's going to happen when, you know, Uri Severe and Bill Clinton come to see this. You don't think about that. One, honestly, you never think they're gonna, you're gonna make something that's gonna have that impact. But also, it's not useful for us. We're trying to make a clear, honest, exciting theater experience. And including, you know, when it comes to Ty and Mona, um, you know, we didn't let them see the script before they came to just see it. You know, it wasn't as if there was an approval process. Um, they, you know, they had to be, kept it as sort of a remove from it as well. And when it comes to the actual participants, whether it's Yol Singer or Yossi Balin or whoever, the really the last thing you want to do is be spending your time with like pictures of all of them and trying to cast people who look like them and who are going to behave like them. That's not going to make a piece of theater. Right. No, it's interesting. I mean, as we were mentioning earlier, in the play, Mona Ewell is the main character. She is the engine of the play. And yet in, in real life, I interviewed her for a dinner, one dinner maybe three years ago, and then um, we had a few email exchanges that were more just friendly because I got to know her through BART, but there was no connection. And then she comes to the opening night on Broadway, and it must be quite a remarkable thing to see a fictionalized version of yourself there in front of a thousand people. Right. And Ty told uh, Charlie Rose that she wasn't especially flattered by it at first. Um, I don't think uh, there was any chance of that, no matter what was going to happen. Um, I think she's much too reserved and careful. And the entire experience of watching herself on stage would have been, as a base point, humiliating. And she wouldn't have enjoyed it no matter what happened. I think she came around to being quite excited by it, and she's been very generous. But it wouldn't be something, knowing her, that she would uh, ever really actually enjoy. Now, the process of mounting a play that you hope gets to Broadway and gets noticed and invokes finding backers who will front you the money to do it. Was this a tough sell? Because I'm thinking you must have heard the who's going to sit through three hours about a complex international negotiation question a few times. Well, um, uh, it's interesting that you try to put us in the frame of commercial Broadway theater. But in fact, <laughs> this started within the confines of Lincoln Center Theater. And in Lincoln Center Theater is a nonprofit um, theater working in New York. So when we initially did it downstairs at the Mitzi Newhouse, there was no intention of it going to Broadway, no expectation of it going beyond that particular place. And we really felt like that was it. And Lincoln Center can, as it should, 
be promoting and developing plays that couldn't be done on Broadway and are unique and and uh, special voices and you know the whole gamut. Um, so that's where it was aimed. It was very unusual that the show sold out almost before we opened um, for its entire run, and there seemed to be an enormous thirst for people to appreciate and enjoy the story. We didn't have stars in it. We didn't have anybody special in it. Um, they just wanted to see it. When it turned out we were going to Broadway, we did have a lot of time to promote it, etc. But it's, um, you know, happily sold incredibly, incredibly well. Um, and that has been a real, um, really gratifying experience. When you finished your first working draft of this play, what were some of the big takeaways you were hoping for audiences to walk out with? Well, before you have an audience, especially before you have the actors in the room with you, you're sort of focused on the the problems. Every play has a series of problems that have to be solved. How do you make it entertaining? How do you make the story clear? How do you create something that your partner, uh, in this case Bart Shear as a director, can can come back with his questions about what is making sense or not to him? So I knew, obviously, that it was about Israel Palestine. I knew that there would there's a great deal of energy and emotion involved in this, but in an odd way, when you're making something alone in your room, you're trying to put any any thoughts about how it will be received out of the room so you can just focus on making something as well-constructed as possible. So trying to put that out of your mind, uh, but at the same time writing with an intention of, well, this scene wants to do this, um, this speech wants to do that, wants to accomplish something. Uh, how do you... Uh, totally keep that out of your process. I, I just can only imagine that you, you're looking at it when it's finished and have some expectations. Um, if, if you don't mind, um, I think there may be a difference between people who are interested in making peace and people who make theater. Um, when we make theater, uh, unfortunately, we don't have an interest in the outcome. We only have an interest in describing the story with some complexity, possible ambiguity, and then allowing audiences to make their own decisions. So if we were going to be peacemakers, we might move you through a lot of conflict on the way. And uh, what the actual outcome is going to be, we knew what the outcome of this story was, but it's also bittersweet and more complex because it, a lot of people suffered consequences from it. But it's really not our job to have an opinion about where it goes. I see. But I think, JT, I've seen you uh, try to um, express what the political act of presenting this play is. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Really, also dovetailing off what Bart was saying, the, the political act comes in the questions that the play or the playwright is attempting to ask. Whenever theater artists are making work, and certainly when I'm writing a play, the difference between us and journalists is that our job is not to provide answers, our job is to ask more and more complicated questions. And ideally, and certainly was the case for me in this play, you're wrestling with the material to begin with because you don't have an answer yourself, and you're, and you're writing it because the fact that you don't have an answer is gripping and fascinating, and you're hoping that the audience will feel the same about it. Now. The clear political act for me, because I get asked this a lot, well, what is your political point of view as a playwright, specifically with this play, etc. For me, the political act is to put 
everyone on stage, we have the Palestine Liberation Organization, we have the Israeli government, we have the Norwegian government, we have men and women talking about their children, talking about their fears and at times even hatreds towards the other side, as they might refer to each other. And it's my job as the author and then Bart's job as the creator of the production to put these people fully realized on stage to constantly, as I've said before, to be expanding the kinds of people and the kinds of voices that get to be on the American stage. And then the audience gets to live with those people and create their own identity with them and then go and make their own decisions about what they agree with or not. Our guests today, playwright J.T. Rogers and director Bartlett Scherr, who teamed up on the 2017 Tony Award-winning play Oslo about the lead-up to the 1993 Oslo Peace Accords. More of our conversation with them after this break on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Check out our website to hear this show and all the other episodes in our series going back to 2002 at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Now more with our guests today, playwright J.T. Rogers and director Bart Scherer, who together with their cast and crew created the 2017 Tony Award-winning play called Oslo, about the back-channel negotiations leading up to the 1993 Oslo Peace Accords between the Israelis and the Palestinians. I talked with the pair in July 2017, not long after they won their Tony. I think it was JT who said that, and I'd like for each of you to talk about this, the conversations that you've had with people who have helped you appreciate the power of your own play. Um, JT, I think you were talking about you know, the value of having a thousand people in the room to just quietly listen to both sides is is powerful, and you've heard that back from uh, people who are reacting to your work. Well, it's been very uh, thrilling and, and moving to have the, the response we've got that almost almost exclusively has been a, a positive response to the play and the production itself, but also emails and Facebooks and strangers contacting you and people writing in newspapers about, to some degree, to the extent of, oh, well, now I may not agree with that side, but I see that they're humanity. And that's a very powerful thing. And that's one of the things about making a work of theater when the audience reacts to it as this does, and I'm, I'm going to steal a bit of Bart's words, who's spoken eloquently about this, is that it reaffirms, it reaffirms your faith in what you're doing, because you think 
you know, this is why I'm making theater and this is what I'm trying to do. And then sometimes, like in any profession, you go, am I right? <laughs> and so the response to the play, not, and not the response of, oh, you did a great job, yay, yay, applause, but the, as you mentioned, the response of silence, listening to ideas, and then arguing and talking about it in the lobby afterward, that's what's been deeply fulfilling. Yeah, and the point of theater from um, that is related to the peacemaking process is giving large groups of people an experience of history in which a complicated event works out, in this case, toward peace, but it could be toward anything, because we can dramatize the event in such a way that they get so completely wrapped up in it that they have an actual experience of conflict resolution or of trying to make something happen in a way they wouldn't if they were simply reading a book about it or anything else. The theater does this kind of transference exercise, which is can be enormously powerful. And the very specific story of Oslo in general, of Tyrod Larson and Mona Yule um, making the efforts uh, to bring these two groups of people together, um, was both dramatically satisfying and turns out to be uh, inspire people with something that's very hard to find, uh, particularly even in the theater, is a certain amount of hope. And Bart, you've said that the response to the play or the application of its meaning by audiences seemed to dramatically change after the November 2016 election. Could you say a little more about that? Yeah. Um, when we first uh, were doing it uh, almost you know, six months before the election, Audiences would get to the end, and um, Jefferson Mays would do Taya's final speech, which was about, you know, angling toward making change and could you hope for peace. And many times, audience members would out loud say, "Well, that's never going to happen, or that's impossible." Ironically, paradoxically, oxymoronically, all three of them at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> later on, when we when we did it after the election audiences seem to have a greater hunger for a hopeful story. And that particular response of, you know, just saying, well, that'll never happen, never resurfaced. They actually were longing for a story which would affirm the possibility that things could be better. They seem to have a greater thirst for it than ever. Do either of you have a favorite conversation that you've had with someone who helped you appreciate the, uh, the power of your own play? That's an interesting question. I haven't thought of that before. Um, I think two things, the first two that come to mind is, I made a reference to Facebook, but I, someone I had grown up with and hadn't seen in decades who wrote me and said that she was an ardent Zionist and she was quite passionate and, and in a constant state of um, anger and defensiveness as an American Jew uh, and a you know, very elegant woman. And she wrote this very long uh, note to me about how she had had to go home and rethink a lot of what she had thought. Not again that she changed her mind in some dramatic way politically, but that she was expanding her, both her emotional and intellectual capacity towards what she reviewed the other side. So on a personal level, that was intense. And uh, Hillary and Bill Clinton came to see the play. And it was really extraordinary to watch the audience's response there's a moment in the new, in the production that Bart so beautifully put together where we see footage of the actual Rose Garden signing ceremony right near the sort of the climax of the play before a brief coda. And in that footage, you see the real Bill Clinton at the time 
congratulating these men. And the audience, the 1,100 people, spontaneously stood, turned to him in his seat, and gave him this five-minute thunderous standing ovation with tears and shouts that completely stopped the show and was like nothing I've ever seen in the theater. Um, yeah, I mean, from my point of view, I went to speak to a um, synagogue. Um, this synagogue is the same synagogue as the Klinghoffer family, who suffered terribly at the hands of the Palestinians um, in a terrorist attack, you know, over 30 years ago and for which there had been an opera made at the Met. Um, every member of the synagogue protested outside the Met that the Met was even producing it because there was any positive images of Palestinians and he felt they were taking advantage of the story. They all came to see Oslo and quite loved it, um, which was heartening. At the same time, um, they uh, proudly told me about how much they had protested at Klinghoffer, and I had to tell them, and they were not necessarily happy to hear this, that I was inside a Klinghoffer and very much enjoying the opera and thought it was excellent and that I wish they'd been there with me too. Um, so we didn't come to a full agreement on that particular topic, but it was very healthy and I thought uh, strong that uh, in Oslo they did have to hear the Palestinians' point of view and that it was a play which could encapsulate both uh, arguments, and at the same time, they were talking openly and positively with somebody who disagreed with them specifically about how those things are represented in the arts in general. I think what's interesting is that one of the things we've both learned about this production, doing it twice now, is this, this hunger for a conversation and to get beyond where people are entrenched. And for us, speaking of Klinghoffer, we were prepared before we opened in the Mitzvah Newhouse Theater for tremendous uh, protests, not because there was any attempt to be provocative, but just putting both the State of Israel and the Palestine Liberation Organization on stage in the Upper West Side, passionately, articulately venting everything they've held back for decades towards each other, that someone or someone's many times plural were going to get very upset. And it was, you know, so we had security and preparation for the actors and what to do if there was disruptions of the show. And it's was extraordinary that instead of that, the reception in, in almost all quarters was so strong that we instead moved the play to Broadway. In the case of a historical play or story, a play based on true events, I'm a little less concerned with spoilers because there are certain things known about how this all ends up. The Oslo Accords obviously didn't solve the clash between the Israelis and the Palestinians, which continues to this day. And you had to figure out a way to acknowledge that in the closing moments of the play. Could you talk about that delicate step and, and where you try to get the audience to land in, in spite of that reality? Well, near the end of, sort of finishing the first mammoth uh, first draft of the play, I realized that I had been so focused on telling the story of the the struggle and the triumph of these two sides coming together to create the Oslo Accords, that then you had the moment to step back and say, well, it would seem a little disingenuous if you didn't reference the fact that this all that has come since. So my answer to that was to create what, what we call the coda, where um, at the end of this remarkable signing moment that Bart is so beautifully on stage, and you hear that we actually use the, the real voice of Rabin in the speech that he gave on the White House lawn, which is, you know, he has that voice sort of like the voice of God, as it were, and it's quite powerful. But then the characters in character still are facing the audience, and we have this 
woven together sort of symphony of voices talking about what happened to them personally and seminal events, most of them quite punishing, that have happened uh, since. And then, you know, it's very gripping and, and I think it, for some very painful in the audience, but then it was also important to me to sort of give something else to end the play with. And there's a speech where Taya turns to Mona and when they're alone on stage and says, you know, tell them, tell the audience all the things that wouldn't have happened without Oslo. There wouldn't have been the Jordanian Israeli peace, the withdrawal of Israeli forces from Lebanon, et cetera, et cetera. And she cuts him off and says, I still don't know if what we did was the right thing, which I think is both speaking for my fictionalized Mona and in some ways even speaking for me as a playwright. And then he says, then I will tell them. And then he has this speech where he walks, Bart, again, beautifully staged, he walks into the audience in a sort of way that's both sort of shocking and intimate and gives this clear, short but clear in call about look, you know, you must try. And it was a moment that, that, as we were talking about earlier, that when it was done in the midst of Newhouse, it was very galvanizing, and some people disagreed with it. But the play then was really about Israel-Palestine, as the play, just through the political transformations we've experienced in the last seven months, has become, without any changing to the text, a play about Democrats and Republicans. It's become this very galvanizing speech. It's not all rah, 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 but it's, of course, mistakes or foolish choices, et cetera, but we began something. And it's, it's quite remarkable to watch the audience listen to that every night. Well, in some cases, it's more powerful to have the Mona character give the shoulder shrug response of, well, I'm not so sure, I don't really know, and, but yet still hear someone's interpretation of the palpable legacy of the Accords. Well, there's an element of, of ambivalence or in the sense of two voices articulately saying, what about this, what about that, which is what interests me as a writer and I think what we've talked about here with you, that our job is, you know, th theater makers are a bit like economists, on one hand this, on the other hand that, and it goes to this issue that we're, we're trying to ask the questions that they keep us up and we wrestle with and not tell you at the end and thus this was a good thing, this was a bad thing, go have dinner. It's Now you go forth and continue the play by talking about it or living with it yourself. Right. Yeah, and, a, and you know, and a beautiful and powerful theatrical experience has to have everything in it. You know, it has to have all the truth of the events in it so that there was doubt, that there was hope, that there was failure. And also it was very important to see the cost on the part of the leaders, you know, Rabin went way out on a limb and was enormously brave in leading people to Oslo and on behalf of his whole country, and he paid an extraordinary price for, for it. And I think it's helpful for people to see how much, how much of a difference that makes. Well, and I don't mean for this to be heard cynically either, but I think that it's valuable and important to allow for an entire audience to feel like that their own point of view on something has been heard too. I mean, both the people who want to invest in the hope, the people who are more skeptical about it, um, they're all pulled into the, uh, they're all fully invested if those points of view are represented in the writing and, and the delivery of the actors. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Well, on that note, then I will finish the interview <laughs> since we've agreed on something. Yeah, I think we've agreed on a lot of things, actually. I think we can agree that your speaking voice would be very good for playing a person who believes in peace. <laughs> right, <well. laughs> because it's very measured and very, um, 
very even and very, very um, balanced. It's a, I mean, I hope you don't mind taking a compliment. No, and I hope you don't mind me saying that, you know, I've begun my acting career late in life and uh, am working on my second film right now. And <laughs> see, <laughs> see, I knew it. I'm available for meetings anytime. Yeah, okay, I thought so. <laughs> The future, the future of Oslo includes a run in London with a whole new cast, uh, and that's some, something like starting over. I'll bet in some ways, but uh, and and then also a, a movie project down the road. What what uh, are your expectations or hopes about either of those projects? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to um, the story of Oslo, is the story of Oslo. It's going to be heard differently in different contexts. If you do a story like that on the Upper West Side in New York City. You have one kind of audience that's going to hear it. If you do a story like that in London, which tends to be, um, um, by all reports, a more pro-Palestinian uh, a place, it might be heard differently. If we do it in Ramallah, it'll be different. If we do it in Dubai, it'll be different. Um, I don't think we will be making direct adjustments to it from place to place. The story is the story, and the audience will tell us more about who they are based on how they respond to it. Uh, when it comes to the film, the film's going to have to be substantially different just because film is a more literal medium. Um, there's a lot of things that we didn't put in the play that we can put in the film, and there's different kinds of emphases in who's telling it. So it will, it will change, and the film script is still to be written. So that is still ahead of us. But um, I think we're just excited that as a story, I think it resonates in all kinds of ways, almost prismatically, depending on the culture we're in. J.T. Rogers and Bart Shear, thanks so much for sharing all this with us today on Peace Talks Radio. Great, thank you. It was my pleasure. You're welcome. It was, it was really fascinating. More from Oslo playwright J.T. Rogers and director Bartlett Shear at our website, peacetalksradio.com, plus links to more about the Oslo Accords and the play, all at peacetalksradio.com. Also, where to go to contribute to our nonprofit efforts here at Good Radio Shows and Peace Talks Radio. Our work is independent of your local media outlet. Support, too, from the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, KUNM at the University of New Mexico, and from businesses like the Spinal Health and Movement Center of Ruben Ramirez in Albuquerque's Knob Hill neighborhood. Nola Daves Moses is our executive director. Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.